0: back. everyone and welcome back to another book podcast. In today's episode I had the pleasure of chatting with David Derbyshire, former journalist and debut author of The Sleep of Reason, an incredibly authentic crime thriller and Amazon bestseller released by Legend Press last year and co-authored by the current head of the Metropolitan Police, Sir Mark Rowley. It was an absolute delight talking to David, so much so that we spent over an hour chatting so I've split our conversation into two parts. I hope you enjoy part one. A big thanks to W.F. Howes, who have kindly provided a clip from the Sleep of Reason audiobook, which is included at the end of this episode. As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. So, welcome back to another book podcast podcast essentially david we've got david with us who wrote the sleep of reason with sir mark roley david has just spent about 45 minutes talking to me and uh, i wasn't recording so that has worked really well but he's very kindly agreed to do it all again so here we go again (laughs) so david i want to talk to you about your career in journalism because obviously you started off as a journalist before moving on to writing fiction novel so how long were you a journalist for
1: um oh so I, I, I must be 20, uh, twenty, thirty years. I don't like to count do the maths. Um, uh, yeah, so I started off um, as a journalist on, on a local paper, the Grimsby Telegraph, back in the mid-90s. So, yeah, and um, so I did three years there, and I, it was brilliant. It was a fantastic, fantastic paper, brilliant place to to learn, the, you know, the, the, the trade Um um, of it and it was it was a great paper and it was one of those I mean it still is a great paper but in those days it was read by everybody mm-hmm. and it was like working for a, a weekly paper every day so you were such so, so involved in the community um, and we used to cover all kind of everything so we used to we used to print the divorces Every day, someone would, every week, someone would go down to the magistrate's court and get a list of everybody in the An and An area. And just list, you know, the following people would have, you know, had a decree in EC this week. Um, and it was great. And uh, people were obviously rang up to complain about it. And we, I, I was sitting there working one evening. I think it was a Tuesday evening at about 7 o'clock and I got a phone call. Um, from this woman. I won't do the accent, because I'm not (laughs) talking about North East Lincolnshire accents. And she said, I want to complain. I said, oh, God, what have I done wrong? Yeah, 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 sorry, can we help? Well, yeah, it's about the divorces on page 13. I went, oh, God, yes. Why am I not in there? sorry, (laughs) I want everyone to know that I've got shut of that bastard, I think was was the word she used. And that was, yeah, that was Grimsby all over. People (sighs) knew what everyone was doing, so it was a great place to work. And the other thing, it was my introduction to crime and to policing, because... Mm. Once a week, Steve Richards, our amazing news editor, would send one of us down to every morning to go and have a chat with uh, the local um, police station, with, with the sergeant on duty, and he would just give us the list of all the crime that had happened overnight. Usually it was a video recorder <laughs> and a TV stolen from a house in Cleethorpe. <laughs> Sometimes it was more interesting stuff. But we got to chat and got to know the local police, and when mm. you turned up, if there was a bigger crime, and you turned up on the, um, at the scene, you, know, you would know, the, you know some of the officers there. Yeah. Um, And you also knew, you know, the the local fire people and the people, ambulance people and the councillors. And it's it's a real shame. I love working on that local paper and it's it's a shame that local news is kind of in decline because it plays such a key role in keeping local councils to account and local businesses to account and planning decisions and environmental stories. And if you don't have an active... Uh, engage local media mm-hmm. um people can do anything they like so i'm a big big fan of that
0: i mean unfortunately i think whenever i think of like my parents they religiously look at the facebook for like the local area but it's not the same it's as a local same. newspaper because anyone can write anything they want on this page like a whole bunch of useless information can turn up rather than the divorces that everyone actually but, yeah. wants to know <laughs> or
1: more importantly you know what the council have done with the money yeah. and how, or how you know what are they doing on education and how are schools and it's funded. that like
0: impartial yeah. you know like here are the facts
1: yeah so it's, so it's an amazing but what journalism did I mean what it did is it gives you a grounding in writing and because you know I, I then did three years there then I went to the nationals and I I um, started at the Mail as their science correspondent and then to the Telegraph doing science and then Consumer Affairs at the Telegraph and then back to the Mail, big environment editor. And and, and that is just an amazing, It's A, it's a brilliant job. Mm. I mean, journalism is just one of the greatest jobs there is because if you're nosy and you gossipy. Which and, I am. <laughs> yeah, and you like... You know, you, you know, you, you like just doing things now. It's brilliant because you can get to ask the most ridiculous questions of people, incredibly yeah. personal stuff. And so, but you, I'm a
0: journalist; like I'm you. meant to ask these questions. And, and actually, <laughs> yeah,
1: and, it, and it's you know, and it was great fun. And I I, I ended up specialising more in technical sort of science and and environment stuff. And again, you're you're kind of having to explain the most amazing things and meet incredible people. Um, I've just so many some fun things. We went, you know, I, one of my favourite days was we went inside. The kind of um, the, the, the the monument of Silbury Hill in Wiltshire, which is just this huge mound of earth,
2: wow. was put up about
1: the same time as Stonehenge, and they'd done a tunnel into it. So, you know, we were allowed to go in inside it, a place oh where no one had been for thousands of years. That was an amazing day. Um, I remember having a meal with um, with with, with uh, David Attenborough. Um, who had just you know presented an award so we went out for him with him that was just a great a great highlight that's
0: incredible he's He's one of those people that you would just invite to a dinner he's 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 like the the, the dream dinner guest list and and I'm
1: so nerdy I was more interested in asking him about his time as control of the BBC too because he was the first controller so you know but I wanted to know about commissioning Monty Python and and the goodies (laughs) and all that kind of things I'm actually quite geeky so that was great so you can do amazing things and you can Mm. travel and see you know I saw space rockets been going off from French Guiana and we had, um, you know, we're just amazing. And the people you meet and the enthusiasts. So I loved yeah. all that. So, yeah, and so I did that for a long time. And I think about um, uh, lots and lots and lots of journalists are writing books, aren't they? And they mm-hmm. and want, and want to. And I think, I mean, I, I, so I there I, there's some excellent journalists I've worked with who are now really successful authors. Um, so at the Mail, there was a guy who took over from uh, when I left. Um, he became a science correspondent. Uh-huh. And he now writes as T.M. Logan and his you know he's incredibly oh, successful that's
0: how you know tim yeah yeah that. uh, okay, that's, ti- that's, that's um
1: that's tim and he's he, you know he's he's i think he's had channel five have just done a second adaptation of one of his books oh
0: yeah his books are incredible incredibly and they do good. so well
1: and uh, my old news editor was fiona barton who's um right. you know again a r- amazing amazing writer her yeah. series that she's done so there's lots of people in journalism who go into to writing books
0: it does um, seem like a, a natural progression in a way but also I feel like you know writing a novel must be so different to writing an article.
1: Yes and no. I mean the yeah I mean what's interesting is actually it's it, it's similar to some extent. I mean when two reporters two journalists meet and we say congratulations on your front page story mm-hmm. we use the word story. We don't talk about articles or pieces or um reports. We use the word story because right. that's what we're doing. So a journalist is going out there Gathering facts, investigating facts, or reporting on things that have happened, or trying to find out what happened, but then putting it together as a story yeah. with the most exciting thing in that first sentence, the intro, and developing it. And every word, every sentence has to keep your interest. And we put humans in there. You know, the most right. important element of any news story is people. So we have people and um, quotes from real people, and and you, and so you you're, you're concocting. Telling stories and all the things that make a news story interesting. So it's all going to be about people. We're interested in conflict and drama and tension and money and suspense and Mm -hmm. often pets and animals. All the things that make it surprise and difference. They're all the things that you find in any story, whether it's a a play or a novel um, or or a film. So it's actually not that dissimilar. What's different is your raw material. And actually the freedom when you're writing a book... I've actually just Making this stuff up. I was
0: going to say you must have like a limit as well, like a, a word count. Like you've got to make it grabby and interesting and tell us all the details, but you only have this much space yeah, in a newspaper got, to write yeah, it. A
1: typical story is what 650, 600 words. Really. Um, the first sentence needs to be must got to be kind of ideally about thirty words in which you want to tell the entire story in that first sentence. So the thing you learn as, as a journalist, as, as, a, as, a, as a journalism student or trainee, is how to write that first sentence. Now it's all different with clickbait cause it's all about and the internet. It's all about right. headlines and stuff, but old-fashioned crafted newspaper articles was all about that first sentence has to tell the whole story, mm-hmm. you know, and then you develop it, and you know it should be able, to, you should be able to edit it from the bottom and take off the bottom half, and it still makes sense. So yeah. that's old-fashioned techniques. So what that did was it it taught teach, teaches everyone about stories, what makes a good story. So that's mm-hmm. got to help. The second thing it does is. It teaches you about kind of writing and about not using unnecessary words, not using adjectives. So that's a great rule of of journalism. Don't use adjectives because there's always a better verb. So you never say, he ran quickly. Well, that's a waste of ink. (laughs) You can say he sprinted and that actually makes better reading. And of course, in literature and fiction, the same rules apply. So you don't use the word very, for example. You know, you don't use adjectives. You try and find short, succinct interesting ways of describing things you cut the fat out you don't have unnecessary sentences that don't add anything everything is there is there for a reason so even if you're having a you know in a book even if, you, if you're going off and having a lovely descriptive um, passage you know you, you've got to be succinct. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, when I was starting writing, I would always give four or five examples of everything, and it was pointed out to me that maybe just one little example <laughs> is always better, David. Oh yeah. So it's, it's so some of those techniques are better, and I think the third thing that you get from journalism is dialogue. You get an ear for dialogue because
2: mm-hmm.
1: what we're doing, you know, um, if I interview someone, I'm writing a shorthand note in my terrible T line, <laughs> um, which I can't read afterwards, and I'm writing down what they say, and then I'm taking those quotes and I'm trying to find the best quote. And then writing it, typing it out, making sense, cleaning mm-hmm. it up, putting it into English, but it's still as people would speak. So you're constantly exposed to writing down how people speak, and I think that's got to have a knock-on effect to when you're coming to write dialogue that you have know like the an ear for conversation. Of, yeah, the rhythms of yeah. conversation, and it can still be clunky and terrible. And I mm-hmm. can write terrible dialogue. So when I was when we, an early draft of *The Sleep of Reason*. Um, Which we'll talk about in a minute, I guess. But um, Mark, uh, my co-author, Mark Rowley, uh, pointed out that when we had the kind of the terrorists having their late-night conversations, they were all speaking like Enid (laughs) Blyton characters. Cor blimey! The Nothing will wrong never with catch that. No, that's right. And Mark puts out, yeah, that's not actually how they're speaking. Maybe real not life, for
0: the vibe that we're
1: going yeah, for. for so, um, so yeah, so sometimes the dialogue's a bit clunky, but I th- that can all—that's gotta all help, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think you know we were saying earlier that you know you you just need to get something on paper. You know, even if it is a bit clunky, even if it is you know maybe not as smooth as it could be, you just need to get yeah, something yeah, written a... down. And I think even you know for the first time with dialogue. It's almost like quite overwhelming because it's like where do you begin? What do you include? Like, is there any point in them having you know this discussion, and where does that lead? Yeah. And
1: I think the best of I mean, I think the best advice to anybody who's, you know is wanting to write is just write,
0: yeah. just write,
1: write, 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 and it's a muscle. And I think again, you know, if you've if you've done this job as a journalist for twenty years, you're used to writing, knocking out. A thousand, two thousand words a day. I would never use the word knocking out to describe <laughs> writing a book. But you know what I mean. Um, so it, it is the more you write, the more practised you are at it. And writing is editing. You know, writing a book mm. is is editing what you've written and making it better. And that's how I think of it anyway. And I, I have a very... Um, we were blessed with a sleep of reason that Carrie Rosen, our editor, was just brilliant. She was just... She was a real joy to work with. And yeah. she... Every suggestion she made always made it better, and I'm of I'm not I'm not a proud person. If anyone can make what we write better, yeah, very happy to take on board that advice. And I
0: do think do it's it. so important to like give your work over to someone and allow them to be kind of you know constructive criticism but critical of it i mean not that carrie was very critical of your work because she did say when it came in because it came in through the submission pile which is you know so many of our um books come to us now via an agent so the fact that we got this from the submissions email was like so surprising because she was like this is a fully formed book she was like i just need to you know do a couple of tweaks get this that and that checked over And that's it. Like, this is we've got a book given to us. And she was just so pleased with that. But, yeah, you do need to be able to kind of go to someone and be like, we really want to, like, take on board what you say. Because, like I know, not from any of our authors, but I know other authors have had it where they just don't. They're like, here's my book, but you can't edit anything. Basically, proofread it rather than edit it. And editing is... So intense and like yeah. such a—it's not proofreading no, at all. No, it's, it's not.
1: It's 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 a real craft, and I think a really good editor is brilliant. And what was lovely about having Carrie is—is is, you know, she was just so was so supportive of the book from the start, and you need that because if you've Number written one a book, fan. <laughs> if you've written a book, yeah, you've got. I mean, by the time you've written it and rewritten it and rewritten it and done your how many drafts you've done and changed it and structurally rewritten it and. You kind of... Uh, it's very hard to see the wood for the trees, mm-hmm. and you begin to have doubts. I mean, I, I don't think there's any writers who don't ever have doubts about what I've written. Yeah, it's for the, sure. They're really an insecure bunch. Um, <laughs> and to, so to have someone who picks it up and then supports you and says, no, this is fine, this is great, I like it. Yes. It's really, it's really really exciting, really important, and someone to help you get it out into the world. So, yeah, we we felt very, very blessed. And she, she liked our central character, too. She liked... Um, Sophie Gabriel and that was that was important We
0: love yeah. Sophie Gabriel De- Detective Superintendent Sophie yeah, give her Gabriel yeah. She was amazing, she's the lead character and she's heading up the investigation or the kind of there's several investigations I guess going on yeah. throughout the book but she's heading up the overall kind of heading up all of it really um, and she's such an incredible central character and she really does like drive the plot and I was saying David that you know She is, at points, undermined by people she works with, which is, you know, pretty stereotypical of being a woman in in that area. But she's just so competent and incredible at her job without it being over the top or, you know, it's almost like... it. There's points of it where her gender is addressed because of the way some people treat her, but overall in the novel, it's just it doesn't matter that she's a woman. She is just a superintendent doing her job, yeah. and we loved reading that about her, like as it. her. Um, but was she like a driving force of the novel, or did she come together slowly, or
1: a bit of both, Olivia? I mean, she, we, we, Mark and I sort of sat down, you know. Having made this decision, um, you know, to, to, to write this book, um, we we were really keen to kind of try and overturn as many stereotypes as possible. Mm-hmm. So um, from the start, we you know we, we we kind of looked at the you know what themes we want, and then we looked at you know the characters we want, and then we put the plot together, and then we kind of did a uh, almost like a storyboard together of how to do it. And Sophie was there right from the start. We definitely wanted our central character to be a woman. We wanted her to be brilliant at her job and to be funny but a bit acerbic no nonsense but not to be superhuman you wanted to be real but we were kind of we were quite consciously trying to avoid all the cliches so Mm -hmm. we didn't you know we didn't want an alcoholic um Embittered old, you know, on the, the last week of her retirement before yeah. they go off. We didn't want any of that nonsense, which, which I don't think appears in books anymore. But you know, all that 1970s police oh, drama I don't stuff. Oh, know. Um, and we wanted someone who we liked, and you know, we're really lucky, Mark and I, that we've we're both married to incredibly successful and brilliant women, mm. and uh, so it wasn't very far for either of us to go to look for inspiration. Yeah. Um, and you know, you know, we, we're surrounded by, and my family are all full of absolutely um fierce and successful women i'm just you know it's 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 not it's not difficult i don't think to you. write to <laughs> yeah. write to write to write a really competent you know person um without falling into terrible clichés that um that you can do and we had lots of so you know we wanted to all the way through it whatever the characters were we were trying to flip everything round and do it in a slightly different way yeah. so um yeah that was the that was that was the point of it but she was i think she was sort of there when we started writing and then i think like everyone in the book she emerges in the writing yes and you find a few lines of dialogue and I think there was a key bits early on where she was putting someone in their box for being a bit um but a bit patronizing a bit offensive and suddenly she just came to life at that point for us and it just just helped a bit
0: yes I I was thinking that there's one colleague in particular who's
1: Skeffington yes
0: irritating (laughs) because he just and I mean, I do think it definitely—it does seem definitely to do with the fact that she is a woman, but also he does just seem like the kind of person who thinks, no matter who's in the role, I could do it better. I'm really in charge here. Neville, kind of character,
1: yeah. Di Neville Skeffington's in it. He's—he's—he's he's, he's abrupt and no at all, and lazy, and not at all, you know, like most police. But we needed to have a bit of grit yes, in there, yeah. To to just just to, but to also add a bit not of a villain.
0: Just like yeah, someone yeah, just, else, and also I loved the fact that you know she wasn't like right. He needs to leave, like get out of the workplace. It was just like put him in his place, move on. Yeah, and like and then yeah. and he carried on throughout the book, or like working on it. It was just those little like details that really. Oh
1: no, yeah, yeah, no, that was, really made it. But he's great fun to write because you can just <laughs> um, you can yeah you can just have him being as abrasive and as annoying as possible. But he is constantly put in his box, and yes. uh, she, she 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 can't God does that. Um, yes. I mean, I think Mark was inspired as well by some of the people he was working with, some of the senior officers mm. he's worked with. So, you know, when we wrote this book back in <clears throat> several years ago, uh, Mark at that point was the former uh, assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan in retirement. Police. And in his <laughs> retirement, um, you know, lot very busy. He wasn't in retirement, he was doing lots of different work. And uh, so the book came out and then he got uh, then he got the call and he's now doing, you know, he's quite busy doing other things,
0: yes, is he? Yes, he is quite busy. He got interviews. that call, cool, like very close to publication date didn't he he
1: did it was it was yeah we were, we were out we were out in april 2022 mm-hmm. and i think i mean Mark was appointed in that sort of spring yeah. as the metropolitan commissioner and he started in september yeah um uh, what a job yeah so, i mean
0: a very quick succession for him a, a fiction book on crime coming out and then the sort of it becoming was a, commissioner and then starting becoming commissioner. It was a busy
1: year for the Yeah, right? I, I think twenty twenty two was, I think was a big year. <laughs> big, big year, first book, and uh, the, book the book is was,
0: obviously the biggest thing of his year. <laughs>
1: obviously, obviously, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, yeah, I mean, it was. It, it is what it is. It's, it's these, these things happen, but it's. I mean, he's. he's, he's I've known Mark since. Oh, we were. Teenagers. I was
0: going to ask back. how old you were when you met.
1: Yeah, I think I must have been. I, we can't remember meeting. So we met. We both went to the same um, summer camps, some some sport activities, summer camps. Oh, cool! And which we carried on going to, and we both stayed to be involved in the running of those, and so that's how we got to know. So he oh, was wow. a few years older than me. Um, but you know, we stayed in touch, and, and we became, we, we, you know, we became friends. And I watched his career with interest as he as he yes. rose through the ranks. <laughs> it, um, I guess
0: it would have been quite unusual being like a journalist and watching your friend be in the news so much with his job.
1: Yes, yeah, it was. And um, what was what was really nice was um, being a journalist and uh, and not really telling anyone that I knew him. He was my mate, and just watching, you know, just uh, and then going down like the
0: that. pub and talking to him about it. It's exactly.
1: I mean, that's that's quite it's quite nice to have that sort of to. to to uh, have friends who uh, you don't tell anyone you know because because yes. uh, uh, they're your friends first. Yes. Um, but, yeah, so he's, he's, he's done all right, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: And so how long was he um, out of the role before you guys started working on the book? Was he, it quite did, soon? He'd
1: been retired a year or, so, I think, about a year. So we were, yeah, it was uh, at a, uh, a particular birthday party that I was sharing with me and my wife, Um and it was towards the end of the evening, Mark was there, he had lots of friends there, they, they had been drinking, they had been dancing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, I think Mark was quite sober, and I may not have been the sober at that point. <laughs> And we had one of those late night conversations where we thought, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great? And I said, I think I have said to him, I, have, you, have you fancied writing a book? Because you, you can't write a memoir, because you can't give away all the secrets. Yes. What about a fiction book? You know, you draw on your experience. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've, you know, I've been Keep a journalist the boundaries for 30 years. Fiction. Keep, yeah. Um, and uh, what about we do it together? And, I put, and he, he kind of and he said, yeah, great idea. Let's 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 do it. And then we woke up the next morning, and I thought, well, that that's obviously. Oh, that's a good idea, <laughs> and it was really unusual to wake up the night after a party having said something. And actually, think, no, that was a good yeah, idea. That
0: was fantastic. That I'm was so, glad that that. Was so glad I
1: said that. So glad I said that. Yes, I, I, was witty and erudite all night. As the night got on, I was, but actually that worked. And then we spoke the next day, and he said, "Yeah, let's do it." So we met up, and it was brilliant. It was so much fun. Um, someone said to me, "How can you write a book with someone else?" And I. My feeling at the time was, I don't know how you do it on your own. Mm. I'm discovering now because I'm writing something on my own, and it's so much harder yeah. because I've got no one to talk to about it.
0: Yeah, no one to like bounce ideas a, off of in the same idea. way. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, so what we did was we we met up and we had lots of so yeah, we we, we worked worked out the themes and we thought, well, the theme of this book, what we want to do, it's about really how far right extremist um, extremism is actually mirrored in. Extremist Islamist terrorism extremism and those are you know they both recruit young vulnerable people they exploit them they take you know and and they groom them and then they put them in these situations and actually. Uh, we wanted a book with both of those in it. We wanted to show how the police can be in the middle of this. We also thought we we want the political end because Mark had been head of counterterrorism, so he'd been to Cobra and he'd met, mm. you know, lots of top politicians. So we wanted a little bit of that in there. All the politicians of the book are fictional. None of them are yes. based on anyone in real life. We're very disclaimer. Key. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so we wanted to get that sense of it, and we want, but we also thought, well, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great to show interesting to explore how young men are, and it is usually men, not always, obviously, but how yes. young people are radicalised, um, and how the police are in the middle, I mean, a, a one, it's, so we've, we had quite a big sort of idea for it, and then we thought, well, what, what characters do we want to populate this world, um, and we kind of, you know, came up with a coalition government that's mm-hmm. very different from ours, and we came up with our police, uh, our police team, and that was really, really hard, just to yeah. get the right balance of police, because most police procedurals for obvious reasons the brilliant ones um you know it's usually a di detective inspector or a chief inspector often with a sergeant you know colin dexter Mm -hmm. came up with this with inspector morse and you know sherlock holmes has his assistant because you need one person to focus on Mm -hmm. to lead you through this investigation and that's a really good way to tell the story the trouble is the other thing we wanted to do was make this as realistic as we could and show what it was like for the police and of course it's not Ever one person. It's a huge team of hundreds of people. If you think about um, Jane Tennyson, um, Prime Suspect. Um, Was it Prime Suspect? Yeah, Prime Suspect, the TV series. You know, that that was the first TV drama I was aware of, a crime drama, where suddenly we had an operations room full of people. Mm -hmm. And that was that sense that every inquiry, every serious inquiry, involves hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people all doing different elements and all working on this together. Such
0: tiny things that... When you put them all together means so much.
1: The jigsaw of this, yeah. yeah. So we wanted to get a sense of that. So we kind of thought, well, where do we have our lead character? And it took a long time to to come... Actually, we've gone for detective superintendent, which is someone who's mostly desk-bound. So that suddenly we've we've got a novel where someone's stuck behind a desk, so we had to find ways to get her out from the desk and build a team around her who could do the stuff. So we ended up with quite a lot of characters, and we wanted her you know, line manager two or three steps up as the assistant commissioner, because we wanted somebody in Cobra, dealing with the politicians and watching how they were um, exploiting you know, the yes. rise of this terrorism for their own political ends and making it worse. So we've got all this going on. So we d- we had this long conversation, and then we storyboarded. So we did, like, scene by scene. Um, you know, we opened up S- Scrivener on the computer and did <laughs> scene by scene, little post-it notes, because, A, we needed to do that because there were two of us writing it, but yeah. also, you know, you've, it's, it's, it's a thriller, so you've got to... You can't do it by the seat of your pants, really. Yeah. You probably can, but you'd have to rewrite it.
0: Well, not not in the way that not in the way that you did it. You would need to plan out the way that you did it because there are so many small things that all come together to make it what it is and to make the outcome what it is. And there's so yeah. many different elements to it. And it it really is like the police in the middle of this. Pyramid of people, just all of them. The triangle, all of them, just kind of battling against each other, and they're all just trying to quell the different areas in different ways.
1: Yeah, and it's yeah, it, exactly. And I think I, so. It's um, it's for that jigsaw stuff, and there are lots of strands. And some of the strands the police set off are interesting, but they don't go anywhere. We have a whole scene where they're collecting DNA evidence. Yeah, it doesn't actually lead to anything. It eliminates a few people, but it's really interesting how. Actually, you collect DNA, you get an, under, yeah. an undercover officer in a bar following someone, and they just pick up the glass and walk out, and they'll never know. You know, we have a few things like that going on, yeah. Um, so we then storyboarded it, and then I went away and wrote, um, you know, would write a first draft with kind of Mark on my shoulder. I'd immediately send in that first draft. Now, you never, no one sees a first draft, yeah, you <laughs> never let anyone see that. And I thought so it's oh, in a
0: locked drawer, it's, it's and set, you come but, back to it
2: later, but, but, yeah.
1: But you yeah, actually know, I sent it over to Mark, and that was that first few. The first few emails were quite nerve-wracking, <laughs> yeah. um, and then Mark, you know, was, was all over it with his, you know, whatever the red pen equivalent on on Word documents are, mm-hmm. or, and was, you know, initially coming back and giving me all the police information, and I would leave gaps for Mark, add something policey here, and yeah. he would write the, the dialogue, and so it was in, it was incredibly collaborative and he was like an editor on my shoulder as I was doing the first draft he would then knock it around change it send it back I would write it with you know so we didn't take a chapter each and write it I kind of started it and then he then edited and edited and edited yeah and writing is editing you know the first draft is then edited and edited and edited to get your final draft you know and
0: And he would have needed you to provide that first draft like he probably himself wouldn't have been able to you know knock out a novel
1: (laughs) I mean I I think it worked it worked really well because I so much respect for Mark's knowledge and his and his expertise and his technical knowledge and he spent a lot of time not telling me things because he wasn't allowed to and we had to find that line about what we could do and then I think because I've been a journalist for however many years it is I think he accepted that I would do the writing to start with but it wasn't it was 50-50 it was genuinely 50-50 this is not a ghost written book with his name Mm -hmm. on it this is this is Mark's DNA is all through this, through the theme and the characters and the plot and all those little technical things. Because the other thing we really wanted to do was make this as realistic as we could. Yeah. Given what we said earlier about, you know, you've got to still have a few characters you focus on. Yeah. So obviously it's simplified.
0: Because otherwise there's just no keeping track of it.
1: It'd be very, very difficult. I mean, I think, you know, you to, to write a genuinely authentic um, uh, sort of thriller, crime thriller would be really dull to read, yes. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's about balance. And I think I think Mark gets that, and I think people in the policing have read it and liked it get that. Yes. There's enough in there that's real, and there are things in there that's real. And the other thing that was great was Mark brought in lots of little technical things and tricks that show how police do things, which were the bits that I really enjoyed, actually. I liked yeah. all that stuff.
0: It's a real window into that world because it is so, like... It's kept so harsh for obvious reasons, but to the point where, you know... Just like any other job, I guess you you know you, you wouldn't know the day to day workings of what the yeah. police are doing. I think the closest I've ever come is to watching that um, Hunted TV show, oh, yeah. where they like trap down celebrities or yeah. like normal people who are just like on the run, and you know it's it's stuff like oh my gosh they got money out of their bank account in this ATM on this yeah. road. Okay, CCTV round the corner, they've gone into this shop. It's, and it's then... an
1: amazing show. It was ruined. writing this book ruined that show for me because it made me realise <laughs> really? that there's no. The way that the producers of that show have actually got access to cctv the <laughs> yeah they're with somebody all the time who says right uh they've used the atm then this the yeah, yeah. and there's no way they've got access to the cctv the,
0: the cameraman that's in the
1: bush yeah, like i'm like, in a bush <laughs> so it's, it's it's simulated as if they yes. were using the cctv which still makes it a brilliant show but there was a great so i, I was new to a lot of this so um ANPR, so the automatic uh number uh place plate number plate recognition system yep. <laughs> um i mean so that is that's amazing i mean there is a, a real-life case of this where you've got so much of this technology now it can solve crimes that you didn't even couldn't even got anywhere near twenty, thirty years ago. Yeah. So there was a case of somebody who was, um, you know, unfortunately was was assaulted by a by a fake taxi driver who picked them up and they were quite drunk. They couldn't remember very much about it. They right. knew where they were picked up late at night. And then you roughly where they were dropped and roughly at the time and like an hour later. So you have these two rough locations and times. So police were able to say, right, what vehicles were in both areas within that window? And I think they narrowed it down to 10 vehicles, could eliminate half of them because, you know, they were driven by, you know, they were, a, you know, they, they were legitimate. And they, got, they found the person and they That's got a conviction. Incredible. That's I amazing. I mean,
0: even, even like just getting it down, whittling it down to five people, like it could be anyone. Anyone yeah. in like the country, and, and they've got it they've down to five possible and, people. You know,
1: mobile phones. I mean, it, you you can take these two ways. If you're if you're kind of very worried about privacy, you can obviously see this as a, an intrusion. But mm-hmm. when you're when you're focused on actually cracking crimes, mobile phone data can tell you where people are, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Computer data, all this digital stuff, DNA data, all the, all this information. Um, I mean, we have a familial DNA search where they they're looking for an they're looking for somebody. Um, and they've got a match um, to a family member, and so they go and sample from their family, you know, everyone who might be related to them. And you can do all these things. And actually, the obstacle to writing a book, a book like this, which I think everyone must face if you set it in the modern day, is that actually you've got to find ways to stop the police catching yes, them because yeah. you've got DNA and digital information. You have to have so very advanced. smart. Yeah, you have to. It's, it's very tempting just to set books in the seventies,
2: you, you know, before
1: you had all this technology. So you know you've got to be very alert to your to your criminals, to your terrorists and how they're using technology and what they're doing with it and mm. hiding stuff um otherwise you know it it would all be over in the first chapter, yeah, especially
0: when you've got a team that's so smart as well, like if you want a believably smart character, you can't have them missing things that would be so obviously yeah. found out in yeah, real life
1: absolutely absolutely yeah, but it's 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 um yeah i mean i I learned loads and um i mean. There was a, one of my favourite scenes as well was um, one of the characters, one of the one of the, the terrorists, one of the right-wing terrorists has got uh, a mobile phone with important data on it. And it's a new phone and if they lock it, it'll be really hard to get the information. It will take days to get that, to hack into it. Because um, police can and security services can hack phones if they need to, but it sometimes takes longer, mm-hmm. particularly if there's a new update. Um, and so they want to get it when it's not locked because it's urgent. they really need to get the information very, very quickly, so we concoct um and it's based on sort of the things that really happen you know a scene where this individual um and then there are undercover police acting on the on the street, creating a scene that persuades this person to hand over a phone and it's all done with actors and fake and and actually that that sort of thing can happen that's, that's incredible. not completely fictional, and that's one of my favorite scenes in it because the guy and the guy gets so annoyed. Um it's it's a, it's a moment where kind of the villain gets, you know, gets arrested and you go, yes. <laughs> That's um, it.
0: And yeah, also the fact that they tricked him, it wasn't like an arrest and then they hacked into the phone, was, which was... in my head is so easy to do, even though it's obviously Although not. They, tr-
1: they tricked him to, by playing into his prejudice, into his racism as well. Yeah. Um, and actually that was also satisfying that his own, yeah. you know, his own, um, you know, his own bigotry... Undid it, which, which is him. kind <laughs> of satisfying to write
0: yeah.
1: um there are there are bits that are, there, are, there are bits in any book ways which are more fun to write than others and that was definitely one of them
0: and that's all for this week make sure to tune in again on monday the 17th of april to hear the rest of my chat with david until then we hope you enjoy this clip from the sleep of reason audiobook have a great monday everyone
2: day one wednesday morning CHILTON PARK, KENT The queue had paused, so Zara took the opportunity to close her eyes and listen. It was a game she had played as a young girl, and one she turned to regularly during the moments of tedium that occupied so much of her sixteen-year-old life. She slipped her hands into the pockets of her donkey jacket and focused. The clanking of the ride machinery, as if an iron bar was being dragged along curbstones, dominated her soundscape but not enough to drown out the barbs of the gobby group of girls behind her taking turns to damn each of their absent friends. She listened harder and caught the burble of a blackbird staking out its territory from the clump of young silver birches and evergreen shrubs planted alongside the queue. They'd queued under the scruffy winter skies for more than an hour now, far longer than her brother Jawad had predicted, lurching forward, spreading out and then bunching up again like an immense concertina. Around them were miserable attempts to decorate the ride in fibreglass and concrete. An upturned telephone kiosk, now pink rather than poppy red, lay alongside a bored sabre-toothed tiger, while, nearby, a blonde viking stood proudly with one boot on the neck of a tentacled alien. For a theme park ride, the theme was a complete mystery, thought Zara. Her initial excitement at joining the queue for Notorious had quickly given way to boredom and then frustration, as the skies had begun to unleash a fine but persistent drizzle. But now, finally near the front of this interminable line, the listlessness in Zara's stomach was being pushed aside by the blossoming of nervous anticipation. Jawad, dressed in a lumberjack jacket and black jeans, was at the front of their group with her mother and Jawad's friend, Imran. Zara was at the back, next to her closest friend, Mariam. You nervous? Mariam asked softly. Nah. That was a lie, of course. The bravado with which she'd agreed to come to the park on her school's inset day was wearing thin, but she did not want to lose face in front of her brother, and particularly not in front of his friend. She sneaked a glance at Imran, laughing effortlessly with her brother, with his immaculate hair and black leather jacket, and those eyes, those scintillating eyes, that always seemed to ignite when she approached the roller coaster screeched to a stop. A man in an emerald sweatshirt kicked at a pedal at the back of the train, releasing the restraints which flipped over the passengers' heads, letting them clamber out on the opposite side from the queue. As the line surged again, Imran, Jawad and her mother walked into the stalls, ready to get on to the next train. Zahra's cousins and Jawad's friends filled the rest of the stalls, leaving no space for her or Maliam. Zara's mother turned to face her, an effervescent woman, always quick to laugh. She seemed somehow even more radiant, surrounded by her family and their friends. Sorry, love, she mouthed. You get the next ride. We'll wait at the exit. Zara nodded. That was fine. She didn't want her mum, or Imran, on the same ride anyway. She wasn't convinced her language would be appropriate for her mother, and she was terrified that Imran would see her being sick. On the platform, Gareth Fletcher flattened his oily hair and gave a thumbs-up to the woman in the control cabin. At her command, the eight cars rolled out of the platform to be yanked up the slope to the first drop. Fletcher slipped his left hand into his trouser pocket to rest his fingers around the metal that lay invitingly inside. Notorious had two trains running at once, and Fletcher had ten seconds before the other rolled into the station. A gust of pine disinfectant filled his nostrils and his gaze fell upon a splatter of vomit next to the rail which the cleaners had overlooked. It wasn't worth reporting, but it irritated him. Why couldn't people do their jobs properly? Lazy bastards, lazy black bastards, he added to himself, like a reflex. He glanced down the track as the other train began to creep into the station and he slit his hand into his pocket again. The train was seven seconds away. Maybe this was the time. Then, as he surveyed the queue, he spotted a middle-aged Asian woman with a group of seven or eight young men and teenage girls. His heart leapt. The men were full of bravado, laughing and pushing each other, showing off in front of the girls. He kept watching. Indian? Maybe Pakistani or Bangladeshi? From the head coverings on the woman and two girls, they were probably Muslims, he thought. Fletcher watched for a few moments, then glanced around the other passengers waiting to board. No little kiddies, that was good. No coppers, no squaddies, no heroes. And then the fire raged again, erupting from the pit of his stomach, ripping through his chest and into his head. He could feel his brain pushing out against the inside of his skull. Too many thoughts, and so much disgust. And this fire, that made him alive and sterilised his doubts and fears, it would soon start to purify the world. The coaster rolled alongside the platform and juddered to a rest. Once the passengers were out of the carriage and through the exit gate, he pressed the button on the wall to open the stalls, allowing the next passengers to get into their seats. The Asian group were laughing as they settled down. The middle-aged woman couldn't reach her restraint, so Fletcher tugged it into place for her. She thanked him and smiled. He smiled back. Nice eyes, he thought. The fire was burning still, not as rampant as a moment ago, but still streaming through his arms and fingers. He never felt so vital. He had ultimate control over these people, over who would live and who would die. And after it was all over, he would take his place in history, one of the growing army of warriors who had stood up and fought to secure an existence for his people and a future for white children. He watched the woman settle into the seat. Not now. Not until they'd been round one time. One last time.